There are moments in worship where I'm always disappointed for all of us that we have to stop singing so somebody can talk. And we don't have to stop singing. Good grief. How did I give you that wide of an opening, Glenn? I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know if you know this about me. I, d- I don't call audibles very often on a Sunday morning. Uh, I like to have the uh, order of worship ready to go and for nothing to change what we're doing. And when changes start happening, my heart rate goes up and my Apple Watch asks me if I need to breathe. Um, but I, I want to do that this morning because I, I don't want to miss this moment that we have today that I didn't really anticipate was going to happen. Uh, and I got a text from Stephen Corbett that we have three of our African missionaries here today. Um, And I don't want to just pay lip service to that. I want us to do what we see so often in throughout the Bible and the New Testament. That is that when, as a church, we're ready to send people into ministry and into mission, we gather around them, we, we lay our hands on them, and we pray for them. And so... It may take a second, but I want to ask Serge and your family. Is, where, where is Serge? Serge, come on. You guys come down here. Casper, uh, where'd you go? Uh, and then Tony Molden is here with us as well. So we got South Africa, Rwanda, Kenya, all places that God loves dearly, all places where we have people who are living out that love of God. And I want us as a church family for in this moment, for them to know how much we care about them and how we carry them in our hearts as well. So if you're willing to get up and come down here and surround them as we pray over them, I want to invite you to do that now. You know, and if you're in your seat and you feel comfortable just putting your hand out uh, towards them, I want to ask you to do that. I know this is all outside of Church of Christ stuff. That's okay. This is bigger than the Church of Christ, right? This is, this is all of us. Okay, so let's, let's pray together. God, we are so thankful this morning that we have this kind of reminder that not only are we a family of faith, but we're a family of faith for the nations, And I just want to lift up these three families to you. And I know that they they mean more to you than we know how to care for them. But we want to learn how to love them better the way that you love them. And we don't want them to feel like every once in a while we mention them or every once in a while we think of them. We want them to know that we really do carry them in our hearts. That they're a part of this family. And we are so thankful for that. And God, we want to pray for the mission fields that you have placed them in. We want to pray for your Holy Spirit to guide them to the people who are ready. And we want to pray for strength. We want to continue to pray that you would work through this church to support them financially. That you would work through this church to pray for them every single day. And God, we pray that they would have a deeper sense of your love for them and through them. 
And as Casper reminds us this morning, God, give all of us the strength to get together to never give up. To hold on to your hope for this world. We thank you for everything in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to start talking while you're all going back to your seats. Don't worry, you don't have to run. We're continuing this morning to focus on the picture of Jesus that we find in the Gospel of Mark. And we have been looking at a lot of different scenes from Jesus' life and ministry. Many of them just snapshots of the way that through Jesus, God is able to meet us where we are and to set us free from whatever it is that is threatening us from getting to experience the life that God created us to get to experience. A life that is free from the destructive power of an ending suffering. A life that is free from the destructive power of sins that threaten to overwhelm us. A life that is set free from despair. A life that is set free from greed and selfishness. I I can keep going. Jesus comes to set us free, and Mark makes that point over and over again at a pace and at a speed that's faster than any of the other Gospels. You can barely catch your breath if you try to keep up with all the things that are going on through Jesus in the lives of people who have no hope aside from him. And yet, there are these other places in Mark's story where Jesus is going to try to set people free from their deep misunderstandings of who God is and who God is calling them to be. And i got to tell you, I don't think that those interactions, those conversations felt to those people like miracles where they were being set free. And it it just reminds us of this truth, right? That Jesus is always good, but Jesus isn't always nice. Christ is willing to say hard things if there's a chance for healthy change. Now, it's uncomfortable to me to read stories where Jesus is confronting the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law. But, you know, as much as I don't like Jesus confronting anybody... And as much as I wrestle with those moments when I'm, I'm 100% sure they would not have described those interactions as Jesus being nice, it's still one thing to get your, your heart and your mind wrapped around Jesus confronting them. It's another thing entirely to allow Jesus to confront us. Because, see, we can run from that. This is one of the dangers, by the way, of our relationship to the Bible, our relationship to Scripture, We act as if we value all of it to the same degree. We act as if we're ready to listen to all of it with the same intensity. But the reality is we are drawn to certain places in Scripture that we either already think we understand and we like feeling like we already understand or they kind of line up with the version of Christianity or the version of discipleship that we feel the safest with, we, we feel the most comfortable about. 
But I got to tell you, Jesus doesn't call us to be safe or comfortable. And if we get to that place, he's got to wake us up somehow. And that's exactly the kind of passage we're going to read this morning together. And again, the danger is going to be that we allow this to simply be a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law over 2,000 years ago, and we don't listen to the ways in which Jesus might be confronting us, might be confronting you this morning through these words. And I can't force you, I can't even force myself to listen with an open heart. So I'm asking you to try your best to open your soul up to these words and see what God does with them. Let's read them together now. Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 5. When the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Hey, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And when they say defiled hands, they're not just talking about the fact that maybe they've, you know, been, been doing a lot that day that has caused their hands to be dirty, right? This isn't just a little bit of a, a, a question about hygiene. This is actually about the fact that throughout the day they've been interacting with people who the Pharisees and the teachers of the law feel are unclean. Right? Gentiles, people who don't share the faith of the people of Israel, that's what makes their hands defiled. Right? So this is not a question of whether or not you know how to how to wash your hands before you eat a meal. This is a question of how dedicated are you to making sure you understand the difference between the kinds of people you should be around and the kinds of people you should avoid being around. And if you have to be around the wrong kinds of people, you should at least go through some ceremonial washing to make sure you're in the right place with God before you sit down at a table uh, and open yourself up to speaking to God as you bless that food, right? So why don't they go through whatever they need to go through to be religiously clean again. And he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. Okay, that can't feel good. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Now again, I, I want to stop here for a second because the reality is they could have been making the same mistake through the years when they read Isaiah that we might be making as we listen to the story this morning. I, I heavily doubt that when they would study Isaiah and they would read these words, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. I am convinced that the Pharisees, when they would read that passage, thought about the Sadducees. And the, and the Sadducees thought about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Jesus makes it clear. You didn't think this was about you. It is about you, you hypocrites. Man, that's rough stuff. And, and I want to be clear with you. It is so painful to listen to Jesus' words that are designed to set them free from spiritual blindness Okay, it is so painful to listen to these words as if they're addressed to them 
they're going to find a way to kill him for saying these kinds of things. And I want to make that clear because it is easy for us to assume it's always somebody else who doesn't know how to listen to Jesus. That we somehow always find a way to listen to Jesus. It's the other people. It's their problem. Can you believe it? But I want to warn you this morning that while you and I, from a historical standpoint, weren't there when people took Jesus and nailed him to a cross, we can kill Jesus and his ability to reach us by running away from the truth he's trying to give us. We can kill him in our hearts. I, I don't know how to help you let Jesus be alive in these words, but you have to let it happen. And I know it hurts. It's been bothering me all week long. I mean, there was a time early in this week I thought, I'm just skipping this. Because of what I was wrestling with, what I'm still wrestling with, but I have to make that choice to let let these living words of Jesus live in me. Okay. He says in verse 8, You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. That imagery is really important because I think you and I think we can hold on to both at the same time. And Jesus says, no, you're letting go to what you should be holding on to so that you can hold on to things you should be letting go of. You've let go of the commands of God and you're holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. We're going to come back to this fine way in just a moment. Okay? For Moses said, he's quoting scripture, because he knows, right? That's, that's how the whole misunderstanding takes place. You, you think, well, we're the people who know the Bible. We, we know what's in there. We know what God means with what's in there. So he, he goes and, and has this argument kind of on their home field advantage, or so they think. Right? For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, right? that is, devoted to God, then you are no longer required to do anything for your father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. Now, I feel like Jesus is pretty clear about what they're doing, but just to make it really something that we all kind of understand, the, the kind of legal loophole there they've created for themselves, is, uh, let's say, right at this point in my life, I start declaring different things that I own as dedicated to God, so that in, 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 a, in a world where there, were, there was no social safety net, there, there was no place for older people to be taken care of unless their adult children took care of them. Right? He says, okay, given that these people have no other option... You see it coming. You see your parents are getting up in age and, 
You know, the the pension's not that great, and they're probably going to have to move in with you. And so you start tagging all these things in your house and in your bank account as dedicated to God, and you keep using them, but you tell your parents when they need help, I'm sorry, I can't give that to you. It's dedicated to God. Right? Now, you listen to that, and you think, well, I I would never do that. I think Jesus wants us to start wrestling with this morning. How, how are we doing it? And we don't see it. Okay? You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And then he adds to me the most problematic statement. <laughs> and you do many things like that. In other words, you remember ever getting in trouble with your mom or your dad, and they start laying it out, and then they go, and, and I'm just going to give you one example. <laughs> I could keep going. Right? That's what he's saying. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside of you can defile you by going into you. Rather, it's what comes out of you that defiles you. Now, I think what makes this challenging for us to understand is it feels like he's just talking about Something, but, but if you really drill down into the context of what's going on here, it's not nothing outside of you can defile you as much as it's no one outside of you that you're spending time with has automatic access to your soul and your heart to make you unclean. You can be around the wrong kinds of people and be faithful. You can be around the wrong kinds of people and not be pulled into what's happening, what they're doing. So don't try to be more holy by distancing yourself from people who you think are unholy. You need to find a way to hold on to the commands of God and hold on to people who don't yet know how to live the commands of God. As it always is true with Jesus, right? It comes down to people. It comes down to relationship. And I think the danger in this text is, is what, what we tend to do with challenging stories and scenes in the Bible, and especially in Jesus' ministry. As we try to apply it, it takes constant work to keep applying it to us and not to others. So the first thing that I think we've got to wrestle with, right, is that it's easier than you might think for us to mistake our ideas for God's ideas. It's clear with the way that the Pharisees are talking that they view the tradition of the elders as having the same kind of authority, at least in this case, as having the same kind of authority as the words of Scripture. Okay? Now, you might think, well, we don't ever do that. I think we do it. And I think it's harder for us to realize we're doing it because it is incredibly difficult to understand that your interpretation of the Bible is not the Bible. Your understanding of what you think the Bible means is not Scripture itself. 
And we have to do something with it as we read it. We have to interpret it. We have to try to apply it. But we have to have the humility to understand that when we do that, once we're trying to figure out what we think it means, we're involved in that process. And by the way, God wants us involved in that process. God wants to partner with us. But it needs to give us a kind of humility. That this is my best understanding And I tell you that going in. This is how I read it. I don't tell you that my understanding is the same thing as God's word itself. We have all kinds of ideas that I think we have come up with that we actually think God came up with. And unless we're willing to ask ourselves the questions, when have we actually tricked ourselves or deceived ourselves without knowing it, then we're going to keep, this is, what's, this is what's so disconcerting to me about this text. They don't think the elders came up with bad traditions that they're handing down. They think it's good stuff that they're handing down. And what Jesus is saying is you're actually handing down something that isn't true. You are passing on your misunderstanding of God to your children and to your grandchildren. And you think it's not, it's not going to, to ultimately shipwreck their faith, but it will. It was never God's idea that church is the place where you try to look like you have your life together. It was not ever God's idea That the point of following Jesus in churches is all about getting it right to the point where if somebody else gets it wrong, we can separate ourselves from them and call them things like denominations. And then we can feel like like even though maybe we're not sure about those other people, maybe God will have grace for them, but we're the most right. And so, you know, we can feel justified in not being around those people and not having to talk to those people because they're, they're mistaken and, and we're not. God never asked us to try to get it right and if somebody else disagreed with us, we just set up shop down the road. It was never God's idea that the primary way the church should save the world is by running it. It was never God's idea that once the church decides it doesn't have enough cultural power, we'll get in bed with some political agenda and ignore the parts of it that should break God's heart. By the way, if I've never said this before, I'm going to say it right now. As Christian people, if we're going to belong to any political agenda, we should be the annoying guy at the meeting that says, I agree with this, this makes me uncomfortable. We shouldn't sign off on any party's full political agenda because last time I checked, Jesus isn't in the White House. And I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have any interest in getting there anyway. It wasn't God's idea. So many of the things that we suffer from in our faith, it's not God's idea. But we blame him for it anyway. And Jesus says, you better figure out how to have constant humility that you might be mistaking something 
you believe for what God believes. And I think he wants us to wrestle with a pretty challenging question, which is, I mean, honestly, who do you think you are? When we use religious reasons to justify our mistreatment of others, we break God's heart and we damage our witness. Jesus isn't just annoyed that there's some doctrinal disagreements and that the ways that the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the teachers of the law describe God might be slightly better or slightly worse. That's not really what's bothering Jesus. And by the way, we pour all kinds of energy into saying things just just this, this way and just to mean this thing and it can't mean this other thing and do you believe it this way? And I, I get it. We get wrapped up in religious debates, but at the end of the day, right, when it's all said and done, Jesus cares more about how our faith causes us to treat other people. That's what matters most to God. And if we come up with, as Jesus says, fine sounding, right? You have a fine way. What he means by that is you have this way of coming up with reasons why it's okay for you to mistreat people, to reject people, to condemn people, to try to push people away from you. You come up with fine-sounding arguments that actually make it seem like it's the right thing to treat someone in a wrong way. And I think what Jesus wants us to know, brothers and sisters, is I don't think the world buys it nearly as much as we do. We're not fooling them. We're fooling ourselves into thinking that people are just waiting for some well-intentioned know-it-all to set their lives straight. Look, I've been wrestling with this all week because the bottom line, I'm not preaching to any of you nearly as much as I'm wrestling with what this means for me. What this has to mean for me. And I have in my life developed arguments for why I don't have to be around the wrong kind of people the people that bother me, the people that don't sound like me, the people who don't think like me, the people who belong to other faith traditions within the broader scope of Christianity than I do. I could keep going. And I'm not about to this morning. It's always more tempting to confess someone else's sins than your own, right? But this text is not about those other Christians. It's about me, This text is not about other churches. It's about our church. And it's always so tempting for us to to jump past that, right? Who is this message for this morning? It's for me. It's for you. And you've got to figure out how you're going to allow Jesus to speak these words. They're not nice words, but they're good words. They're healthy words, and they're trying to call us to account. To ask ourselves, do we really believe that we're loving people as well as we're called to already? Do we really believe that everybody we've been called to reach, we've reached? Do we really believe that our faith is primarily about how we describe it instead of how we live it? It's not just the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that were a bunch of hypocrites. It's me. I'm a hypocrite. I talk a much better game than I live. 
And you know what I'm afraid I do with all that? I decide that grace means that I confess it, I feel a little uneasy about it, and I don't change. What is that? This message is for me. And it it makes me uncomfortable because I'm worried that we get to this place where it's always someone else who's the problem. It's always another group that's ruining everything. I don't know how to say this. I'm I'm gonna give it a shot. On the cross, Jesus puts to death the consequences of our sin, and he puts to death the excuses for our divisions, and he puts to death our temptation to constantly look at the world and feel like victims. Jesus was the last victim. He kills the power of victimhood. I'm not saying he's the last person to suffer at the hands of someone else. I'm not saying that everything that happens is is what God wants to have happen to you. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a perspective. I'm talking about the way we see ourselves. You can have horrible things go on in your life and not choose to primarily define yourself as a victim. And I'm tired of people in in our world who look at the state of the world and instead of understanding that we've been called in the wake of the one who's going to heal and save it, we talk like a bunch of whiny victims. Who do you think you are? Right? That's Jesus trying to get us to wrestle with it. And ultimately, the work of grace, it has, it has to start to transform me from somebody who thinks that it's everyone else that's the problem to understanding that because of Jesus, I can admit that I'm, I'm the problem. And that Jesus is trying to heal me of that. That Jesus is trying through me to heal other people of the damage that I've done. Because of how I've misrepresented the goodness and the love and the grace of God by setting up a bunch of rules and a bunch of hurdles and a bunch of things that people have to navigate and get through just to get... The church can't get in the way of people in Jesus. I'll tell you what the church can do. It can trick itself into thinking that it's a part of what Jesus is doing at all. He will not change because we want him to. He's not going to change who he's calling us to love better. He's not going to change the scope of the mission. He's not going to tell us that because it costs us too much or because we don't know how to do it or because we haven't figured it out yet that we have reasons and excuses to settle for who we are and what we do right now. Jesus wants to wake us up and rattle our cages and ask us, do we really believe that he is who he says he is and his way of life is the best way of life and it is always a way of life that is defined by sacrificial love? That's it. It's a sacrificial love that's stronger than death itself. That message is for you, it's for me. And I am concerned that we have come up with religious ways of not hearing the voice of God. It is not my job to protect you from this text. It's my job to make you look at it. 
and I'm sorry. But I believe we're all strong enough to hear it, to wrestle with it, to find out how grace is not an excuse to settle. Grace gives us the confidence to leap out and trust that we're going to be caught. Isn't it amazing that this story isn't over yet? We're going to sing together now, and as we do, I just hope and pray that you are able to make a commitment that we're not going to just leave this room and be done with asking these questions. How have we mistreated people, sometimes on purpose, many times on accident, in the name of Jesus? How have we missed? The, the ways that this is all about reaching people no matter what they've been through, no matter what they're going through, no matter their brokenness. How, how have we somehow lost our way when we're trying to follow in Jesus' way? We've got to figure that out. And I want to be clear about this. I'm sorry, guys. I want to be clear about this. God's grace is better than our misunderstandings. God's grace is better than our mistakes. God's grace is better than anything you or I could possibly pull off and do. God's God's grace is greater. So we have nothing to lose to admit this morning, in this moment, that we've been wrong. Because you can be wrong and be saved at the same time. Because of the amazing grace of God. Our shepherds and their wives are going to be standing at these... Uh, three double door exits to talk with you, to pray with you, uh, to support you. Uh, we want this to be a, a community where when we come in into this room and we've got a burden that we've got people that we can share it with. And so if you have any concerns at all, please go to those couples as together we stand and sing. Oh, to Jesus.